Harry Weaver had a habit of starting and warming up the car for his wife, Helen, when it was chilly out. On January 19, 1955, Harry walked out of their San Angelo, Texas home, grabbed some files from one of their four cars to put into the car he planned to drive for the day. He walked to the couple's green 1954 Chevy, inserted the key in the ignition, and was just about to start the car and warm it up for Helen when he had to run back inside the house to answer the call of nature, as he put it. Helen Weaver planned to visit her mom in the hospital that morning and walked out of the house around 8.30. And as she walked down the driveway, the car Helen chose was a simple matter of fate. The Weavers had four cars. The one she normally drove was blocked in by that 1954 Chevy, so she walked to that car, saw the key was in the ignition, as Harry always did when he was going to warm up a vehicle for her. She sat down in the car, closed the door, and when she turned the key to start the car, there was an explosion so powerful that engine parts were propelled a block away. Harry Weaver ran from the house, and as he got closer to the car, he heard his wife screaming his name over and over again, asking him for help. A neighbor called for help, and Harry held Helen and kept telling her that that help was coming, that she was going to be okay. By the time an ambulance arrived, 51-year-old Helen Weaver was unconscious. Five minutes after she arrived at Shannon Hospital, Helen Weaver died. And hours later, a man named Andrew Nelson and the Weaver's ex-son-in-law, Harry Washburn, were in a car together, hundreds of miles from San Angelo, when they heard a radio announcement that socialite Helen Weaver had been killed in a car bombing. Nelson said Washburn immediately went pale and screamed, My God, that's the wrong one. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard, and this is the story of the car bomb murder trial, the first televised murder trial in American history. Harry and Helen Weaver were very well off. Both had been married and divorced before they met and fell in love. Helen had inherited a ranch when her father passed away, and Harry had made a name for himself as an architect and civilian advisor to the U.S. Navy. The couple's marriage in 1939 made them a powerful force in the world of business and farming in central Texas. Harry and Helen both had children from their previous marriages. Harry's daughter had married Harry Washburn, but Washburn struggled to find his footing in the business world. The couple lived in Houston, where several businesses Washburn tried to open did not succeed. Eventually, the stress took a toll on their marriage, which ended in divorce. Harry Washburn felt he got a raw deal in the divorce settlement, and when more of his business dealings went south, he went after his wealthy ex-in-laws. He tried to extort money from Harry Weaver several times, but Weaver would not bow to pressure from Washburn. He told him no, and Washburn threatened Weaver that he was going to make him pay. Harry Washburn tolerated Helen Weaver. Due to the struggles between Washburn and his ex-wife, 
Harry and Helen Weaver's grandchildren would often stay with them. Helen was said to be a loving and caring grandmother, and she had more patience with Harry Washburn than her husband, who felt no sympathy for Washburn and was adamant that his grandchildren were better off when they were away from their father. The tension between Harry Weaver and Harry Washburn had been escalating for a long time, which is why on January 19, 1955, when Weaver's wife was pronounced dead 26 minutes after the bomb exploded under the hood of her car, Harry Weaver immediately told police Washburn was behind Helen's murder. He was the only person who hated the Weavers enough to do this. But Harry Weaver was shocked when the local district attorney, Aubrey Stokes, shared with the media that he believed Harry Weaver was guilty of the crime. And Stokes expected to arrest Weaver for the killing within a matter of days. Investigators brought in bomb experts who weren't able to find enough of the bomb to be sure what kind of explosive was used. But they did find fragments of wire from the bomb. Three men, a chemist, a fingerprint expert, and a demolition expert, were sent to Helen Weaver's ranch, about 25 miles outside of San Angelo, to check the Weaver home and all buildings on that ranch for hidden wires or any match to wires from that bomb. The men found nothing, which was a bit shocking to D.A. Stokes, who firmly believed Weaver had killed his wife. Three days after Helen's murder, her will was filed for probate, and detectives noted that most of her estate was left to her daughters, but the family ranch and home were left to Harry Weaver. D.A. Stokes considered this to be proof that Weaver had motive to kill his wife, but Weaver was himself a wealthy man, and the motive seemed shaky at best. Once Aubrey Stokes heard that Harry Washburn had a rock-solid alibi, he felt he had to move in on Harry Weaver as his prime suspect. After all, Washburn was in a car with his friend Andrew Nelson more than 400 miles from San Angelo on the morning Helen Weaver died. And Harry Weaver didn't help himself by remaining silent after his wife was killed and he was accused of her murder. Jack Donahue wanted the chance to speak to Harry Weaver and get his side of the story. Donahue was a respected crime reporter for the Houston Press. When he talked to police and other sources familiar with the Weaver case, it seemed clear to him that the case against Harry Weaver was a flimsy one at best. The investigators theorized that Harry had, for some unknown reason, paid someone to plant the car bomb but they couldn't work out what Weaver's motivation would have been to do that to his wife. Donahue kept digging and found Washburn had the motivation to kill Harry Weaver and possibly Helen. There were documented incidents between the Weavers and Washburn that were cause for concern. In 1951, Harry Washburn had been charged with threatening Helen and Harry Weaver when he tried to extort $20,000 from them. It was a violent attempt that involved Washburn breaking into the Weaver home in the middle of the night, holding them at gunpoint, and demanding Helen write out a check for him or die. 
Harry Weaver reasoned with Washburn to save Helen that night, saying if he killed them, there was no way he could cash a check and get the money he wanted. Harry Weaver offered up a $5,000 payment as a compromise to get Washburn out of his house. But the Weavers did report the incident to police. In the end, they decided not to press charges to keep their family drama out of the news. Now, Jack Donahue knew Harry Weaver hadn't talked to reporters since his wife died, but he made the trip to San Angelo to beg Weaver's lawyers to convince Harry to talk if he really was an innocent man. After arguing with Harry Weaver's lawyers for four hours, Jack Donahue got his front page interview with a headline from Weaver saying he was an innocent man. Donahue also broke the news that Helen Weaver's family were offering a $10,000 reward for information that led to the arrest and conviction of her killer. The reward notice was printed on the front page of several papers and tips started pouring in. Two men, John McInnes and Ray Fife, signed affidavits that Harry Washburn paid them $750 to shoot Harry Weaver back in 1954. The men claimed Washburn had met with them and given them a 12-gauge shotgun, some cash as a down payment for murder, and provided a car they could use the night they were to kill Harry Weaver. The men said they never intended to go along with the plan. They just used Washburn to get some cash and told him they wouldn't be killing Harry Weaver. Fife and McKinnis said Washburn became angry and told them he would have to kill Harry himself. Now, the violent break-in from 1951, combined with this tip from McKinnis and Fife, led police to follow the theory that Harry Washburn attempted to kill Harry Weaver again, but had ended up murdering Helen Weaver. 38-year-old Harry Washburn was arrested and charged with first-degree murder about a week after the bombing. Another man, Carl Henninger, was arrested because of his experience with explosives and his connection to Washburn. But days later, Henninger was released and cleared of any involvement in the murder. Harry Washburn maintained his innocence and stood by his alibi. He was certain he would never even face trial because the DA didn't have a case. Washburn was seen in Houston late in the evening before the murder in San Angelo, which was a solid nine-hour drive away from Houston, and he was seen again around 7 o'clock, the morning of the murder. And he pointed all of this out to reporters who spoke with him after he was arrested. Washburn said he was innocent of the whole thing, and the DA may indict him, but he was never going to get a conviction. Now, Harry Washburn's friend, Andrew Nelson, was his ultimate alibi. He held Washburn's fate in his hands, his friend had been with him in that car hundreds of miles from San Angelo on the day they heard Helen Weaver had been killed. Nelson was an ex-con who had been sentenced to life after he committed a series of robberies. His good behavior in prison for 10 years earned him parole that was conditional on that continued good behavior. But Nelson screwed up. He got himself arrested for burglary days after Harry Washburn was arrested for murder. And Nelson knew he was about to go back to prison. He also knew he had valuable information 
that could get him a deal and keep him from going back to prison for life. Andrew Nelson told police that five days before Helen Weaver was killed, he and Harry Washburn were at a store in Houston, and he witnessed Harry buy 50 pounds of dynamite. Nelson also claimed he took Harry Washburn to a remote location in the woods where he set off a practice charge. Nelson explained how he guided Washburn through the process of attaching wires to dynamite from the generator of a car. Andrew Nelson gave police the exact location of this practice run in the woods, and when police arrived, they found evidence of a blast that matched Nelson's story, including fragments of wire in the woods. Police also found wire in Harry Washburn's house, and that wire matched wires found at the scene of the car bombing and at that practice site in the woods. Andrew Nelson's wife, Catherine, also came clean to police. She told them Harry Washburn asked her to look after his kids, who were staying with him on the evening of January the 18th. She cared for the children, and Harry Washburn told her it would be an overnight thing because he would be gone all night. Detectives needed more to break apart Washburn's alibi because they still had folks claiming to have seen him in Houston the night before and the morning of the car bomb. But one of their own saw a story about the car bombing in his local paper. The Columbus, Texas police chief saw a photo of Harry Washburn and immediately recognized him as the man he pulled over around four in the morning on the day Helen Weaver was murdered. The chief showed San Angelo detectives a citation he wrote for one Harry Washburn driving a red over black Ford. He had been pulled over for driving over 80 miles an hour and running a red light as he was driving away from San Angelo, heading southeast towards Houston. With that evidence in hand and a positive ID of Washburn and Nelson from the clerk who sold that dynamite, the district attorney moved forward with the case, and a grand jury indicted Harry Washburn and Andrew Nelson for the murder of Helen Weaver. Now, there would be two legal battles before Washburn would stand trial. First was the request for change of venue because of all the news coverage around the case in San Angelo and across Tom Green County. Washburn's defense argued they would never get a fair trial if the case remained in the county. And Judge Drummond Bartlett from the 54th District Court agreed and moved the trial from Tom Green to McClellan County, Texas. Then there was the debate over televising the trial. KWTX Television General Manager Buddy Bostick believed the public had the right to see this trial. He requested that cameras be allowed in the balcony of the courtroom. And there was a precedent set in the summer of 1954 when Judge Bartlett had agreed to allow a photographer from the Waco Tribune Herald to take photos in the court with the order that his process be unobtrusive. And Buddy Bostick and his lawyers said their TV equipment could also be unobtrusive. Critics of cameras and courtrooms argued that it turned justice into a cheap show and could interfere with a defendant's right to a fair trial. 
But Harry Washburn's defense agreed after Washburn said live TV coverage was fine with him because he wanted the whole world to see he was innocent. The judge allowed it, and on December 6, 1955, the trial of Harry Washburn became the first to be broadcast live, gavel to gavel, in America. A camera was installed in the balcony out of sight of the jury, and microphones were hidden around the courtroom. KWTX canceled TV commercials and airing of some established shows to ensure they offered viewers uninterrupted coverage for the four-day trial. As Waco Today wrote, from December 6th to December 9th, 1955, one could have shot a cannon down Austin Avenue and not hurt a soul because the normally frenzied Christmas shoppers were all inside stores watching the trial on TV. And that's because not everyone had a TV in their home back then. People couldn't stop watching because from the moment the trial went live, it was clear that it was going to be interesting TV. First, there were the lawyers. Tom Moore, the McLennan County District Attorney, was first chair for the state. He knew he had to get every word right as he prosecuted Washburn because he was up against Waco attorney Shuford Farmer, serving as the first chair for Washburn's defense. Farmer was best known in Texas as the one-armed bandit. He was a well-known criminal defense and appeals lawyer who had never gone to law school. Farmer had attended a business college in Fort Worth and read law in the Waco law office of a man named Daddy Joe Taylor. At the age of 19, Farmer passed the bar in 1912, and he served as a judge advocate general at Camp MacArthur in Waco during the First World War. Years later, he was heading home to Waco from a business trip in Austin when he was involved in a car accident. And when he woke up in the hospital, he learned doctors had to amputate his left arm to save his life. Farmer's immediate response was to ask where the arm was because he had a diamond ring on his finger and he wanted the ring back. Over the years, Farmer's sharp defense skills led to that nickname, One-Armed Bandit, because prosecutors said he stole so many guilty verdicts from them. And that's what Thomas Moore was trying to prevent in this trial. The 10-man and two-woman jury, along with the audience watching on live TV, would have an up-close and personal view of Prosecutor Moore matching wit and skills with Farmer's defense. Farmer maintained from his opening statement until his closing arguments that Harry Weaver had murdered his wife and Harry Washburn was a victim of Weaver's vile character. Farmer did not present a clear motive for Helen's murder, but he did make it clear to the jury that Harry Weaver inherited his wife's expansive ranch. Those watching the trial on TV saw a wide variety of people take the witness stand as Moore made the case that Harry Washburn was guilty of murder, but had killed the wrong Weaver on the morning of January 19th. As to Harry Weaver, the only thing he was guilty of was acquiring a worthless son-in-law. Along with testimony from Columbus, Texas Police Chief Jen about the traffic stop that proved Washburn had not been in Houston the night before Helen Weaver was killed, Moore called an airman to the stand. 
He was stationed at a local airbase and had been working the night shift at a gas station across the street from the Weaver's home. He had called police after Harry Washburn's photo was published in local papers. He said he had seen Harry Washburn driving a red over black Ford buying gas late on the night before the explosion. More pointed to this testimony is proof that Harry Washburn was near the Weaver's home and planted the bomb in their car. Now, one of the state's star witnesses also proved to be one of the most fascinating people to take the stand. Her name was Adela Henninger. The 24-year-old was married to Carl Henninger, who had been arrested the same day as Harry Washburn, but freed when police cleared him of involvement in the murder. Adela and Carl were estranged when Adela was making a name for herself as a professional wrestler. The petite blonde wrestled under the name Nature Girl. Her testimony was circumstantial, but sensational, as she was the key to the prosecution's case for Harry Washburn's motive to kill Harry Weaver. Adela claimed she spent a lot of time with Harry Washburn, who asked her to use her beauty and charm to earn the trust of Harry Weaver, said she would make a lot of money if she did what he asked. Washburn wanted Adela to get Harry Weaver to teach her how to shoot. And then, weeks later, she was to shoot Harry Weaver and claim it was an accidental shooting. Adela said she told Washburn she would never do that. But Washburn, through conversations with her, did reveal why he was trying so hard to get Harry Weaver out of the way. He explained to Adela that Helen Weaver was a soft touch. If he could take out Harry Weaver, he knew he could get Helen to pay him off to stay away from her grandchildren and the rest of the family. There it was, the motive that had allegedly driven Harry Washburn to kill. The plan that had gone all wrong when Helen Weaver chose to drive that 1954 Chevy on the day she died. The state's next witness was the man who gave detectives a break in their investigation, Andrew Nelson. KWTX viewers were expecting quite the show when Andrew Nelson took the stand because he was that co-indictee in the murder case. But at the beginning of the trial, Nelson's attorney, Woody Zachary, informed the court that after Nelson had been summoned as a witness for the state, he advised his client not to testify because it might incriminate him. Prosecutor Moore said the state would offer Nelson immunity from prosecution, and Andrew Nelson took the stand. Nelson immediately stated his name and said, I refuse to answer any questions on the grounds it might incriminate me. Over and over again, as Moore questioned Nelson about Washburn's dynamite purchase and that trial run of explosives in the woods, Nelson pled the fifth. Washburn's defense attorney, Farmer, objected to each question from the prosecution, saying that questioning Nelson in the presence of the jury was innuendo of his client's involvement in the crime. But each objection was overruled. Farmer then requested the judge remove the jury from the courtroom so the nature of the questions the state wanted to ask could be discussed. But Farmer's request was denied. 
The prosecution continued to question Nelson, asking him about the wire that was found where the practice explosion had happened and the wire that matched wire found at Washburn's home and at the crime scene. And Nelson continued to plead the fifth. On December 9th, 1955, the televised trial ended with Harry Washburn hearing the jury return a guilty verdict. Washburn would be sentenced to life in prison, but one armed bandit farmer had noted an appeal opportunity before the verdict was handed down. Farmer appealed the conviction based on the prosecution calling Andrew Nelson to the stand and never sealing the deal on an immunity agreement. Nelson never answered a single question, but the only reason Nelson was on the stand during trial, pleading the fifth, as Prosecutor Moore asked questions detailing Washburn's movements and implicating him in the murder, was that Moore had said in open court that Nelson would have immunity from prosecution. During the appeal, Farmer noted there was no record showing the court that Nelson or his attorney, acting on his behalf, had consented or approved any immunity offer from the state of Texas before Andrew Nelson took the stand. Which is how one armed bandit farmer stole another guilty verdict from prosecutor Thomas Moore. The appeals court agreed with Farmer's case, writing the following in their judgment. The trial court committed error in permitting the state to call the witness Nelson, a co-defendant, to the stand and require him to claim his privilege against self-incrimination and refuse to testify in the presence of the jury. Unless the witness had agreed to turn state's evidence, the prosecution ought not to place him on the stand. To do so and wring from him a refusal to testify, affording to the jury an opportunity to consider the refusal as a circumstance of guilt, has been said to be certainly prejudicial. Farmer won Harry Washburn's appeal less than a year after he was convicted. But the prosecution quickly moved to retry. Harry Washburn on first-degree murder. Washburn's second trial was held in Dallas County, Texas in 1957. That trial ended with the jury handing down a guilty verdict. Harry Washburn was once again sentenced to life in prison. And that's where he stayed until 1974 when Harry Washburn was released on parole for good behavior. He violated parole in 1978 and was sent back to prison for a month. In January 1980, an obituary in the Waco Tribune read as follows. Harry Leonard Washburn was born on May 13, 1916 and died on Monday, December 31, 1979. Harry was a resident of Texas. For years, KWTX would be praised by legal experts for their coverage of the Washburn murder trial in 1955, with legal professionals saying the telecast was unobtrusive and gave the public a front-row seat to the justice system. As to Harry Weaver, he publicly thanked crime reporter Jack Donahue for helping him through the most difficult time of his life, the death of his beloved wife, and the cloud of suspicion that hung over him when the DA accused him of murder. Harry Weaver said, Jack Donahue helped tip the balance for me. 
He gave me strength at a time when I could not find the strength I needed in myself. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can see photos from the first trial to ever be televised and sources for this episode at southernmysteries.com. Now, this podcast is independent. All the research, writing, recording, and producing of episodes is done by a, by a single staff member, and that's me, along with a growing group of supporters on Patreon who help inspire me to continue this show. Well, patrons like Karen from Croydon, which I now know is a suburb of Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, along with Susie from Glendale Heights, Illinois, and Audra from Hampstead, North Carolina. Thank you so much for being our newest patrons and supporting Southern Mysteries. And when you join us on Patreon, you get access to monthly bonus content called Southern Mystery Shorts. The newest episode just released last week, and it features the story of one of the most remarkable survivors of the Civil War. You can join Karen and Audra and Susie and all of our patrons when you sign up at patreon.com slash southern mysteries. And connect on social as well. Just search for Southern Mysteries Podcast. Love connecting with you. And remember, I'm always open to suggestions of stories to feature on the show. So if you have one, make sure to reach out and share it. Thanks so much for listening. Got a night.